Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. It's another fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, supported by listeners who voluntarily subscribe. Let's name names. Mary Gruber, Jeffrey Adair, Patricia Player, and Kathleen Lowy. Thank you for your contributions to the Peter B. Collins Show. From the heavens, it was easy to tell. It was love from above that could save me from hell. If you're able and you'd like to, you can help. Just go to PeterBCollins.com and look for that tab on the right that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as five bucks a month. Later in this podcast, our film reviewer Gary Chu has a novel, a novel review of the new DiCaprio film called Inception. I'll just say that the movie's about dreams, and Gary's review is kind of dreamy. Also, if I can make the gizmos work, I'm planning to bring you at least a portion of President Obama's weekend radio-slash-internet address, where he finally broke form, at least the form he set for himself these last uh, 19 months, and criticized Republicans. Now, he's looking backward, not forward, but don't get any ideas. It's just political rhetoric, and we'll talk about that and uh, kind of talk back to the president's commentary. But I remain very concerned about his broken promise to close Guantanamo. And while the president has told us that the U.S. no longer tortures, his administration has been active in the courts to suppress any investigation any accountability, and any reparations to those who were victims of the Bush-Cheney torture regime. And it smacks of cover-up. It really does. When you look at the political landscape and say, why would a Democratic president, who has been blocked at every turn by recalcitrant Republicans, repay that favor by refusing to allow honest, straightforward investigations and possible prosecutions into wrongdoing during the Bush era. Professor Lisa Hajar returns to our program. She is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's an editor of Middle East Report, and you can find her writings there at uh, Merup's website, which uh, we'll put up in the show file information M-E-R-I-P, Merip.org. 
Professor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Peter. So you've been on sabbatical this year, and uh, you've spent at least some of your time shuttling back and forth to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. You were there in early July. You'll go back in August. And you have uh, acquired press credentials, you told me, and you've been covering the trial of the Canadian citizen named Omar Khadr, K-H-A-D-R, who was arrested at the age of 15 and accused of killing a U.S. soldier with a grenade in Afghanistan. And this is a, a, a case of some notoriety. Tell me about your own views about Cotter and why you think his case is significant. Well, his, uh, the Cotter case is ex- exceptional in a number of ways. Um, he is currently the youngest person at Guantanamo. I mean, he wasn't always the youngest, but at 23 years old, he... Um, uh, has been has been there for eight years. That's one third of his life. So that's one unique factor. The fact that he's a Canadian citizen, he's the only citizen of a Western country that remains at Guantanamo. Although there is one British resident named Shocker Amr who is also still there. Yes, we and, know about Shocker. He's his case is uh, is notorious in a different way. Right. Exactly. And Shocker has been sort of sequestered into isolation and. Uh, it's a sad story, as I'm sure your listeners know. Yeah. But with um, the other thing that distinguishes Cotter from all of the other people um, that have been charged uh, or slated for prosecution in the military courts, only Cotter uh, faces what are, you know, even remotely like war crimes charges. I mean, everyone else has been charged with activities that were turned into you know, militarily prosecutable offenses by the Bush administration, support for terrorism, material support, conspiracy, and so on, or even acts of terrorism, like mm-hmm. the 9-11 guys. But Cotter is the only one, you know, the main allegation against him, as you said, being that he is accused of throwing a grenade that killed a U.S. soldier. And, and just a, a little quick background. We talked to Andy Worthington last week, and by his uh, detailed analysis... Some 93% of the 779 total individuals held for some time at Guantanamo had absolutely no connection to terrorism and no culpability for what we would consider uh, to be crimes against the United States. That's true. I mean, over well over 500 were uh, have been um, released over time. I mean, many of them because it was you know their arrest and detention there was simply a mistake. Um, others have been uh, freed on as a result of habeas corpus litigation, I mean, very belatedly right. on the grounds that, you know, in fact, the allegations against them were baseless, you know, for example, based on coerced or hearsay evidence. And there are some um, 180 prisoners currently at Guantanamo, of whom 90, some, I think it's 97, have been cleared for release, but mm-hmm. because many of them are Yemenis and um, yeah, 60, political reasons. 60 or 61 of the 97 are from Yemen, and uh, the courts are whittling away at the Obama's uh, administration's moratorium on release of the Yemenis. Now, coming back to Qatar, what do you see as the quality of the evidence and available testimony against him? Well, um, that's an extremely good question, and it's one that, you know, over the last few years I've been very curious about why, uh, what drives the prosecution, you know, first of all, and, and I think perhaps most importantly, is even if he was actually guilty of, of the things he's accused of, 
his age. I mean, he was 15 when he was captured, and all the activities he's alleged to have committed occurred when he was 15. So that in and of itself should be, you know, if, if the United States was behaving in the internationally sanctioned way, we wouldn't be prosecuting him, we'd be repatriating him for rehabilitation. But now, as far as the evidence goes, let's think the most serious allegation is that he threw a grenade that killed um, a special forces soldier named Christopher Spear. Mm-hmm. Um, the basis of that is twofold, and both of them are highly dubious. One of them is statements that he himself gave both at Bagram um, when he was captured. I mean, he started being interrogated. He was captured when he had been blinded in one eye, so ostensibly the um, the grenade was thrown after he was blinded, so that in and of itself you know, raises some questions. He'd been shot twice uh, by ground forces, and he was discovered under a pile of rubble. But he um, subsequently, he was the only person who survived that firefight. So subsequently, he was questioned about and then gave statements that he had, in fact, thrown the grenade. Even his own statements are contradictory. He's described um, different ways of throwing it or under different circumstances. But one has to take into account that he was being tortured and coerced, you know, not to mention severely wounded when... Uh, those statements were given. So, well, and and can we just throw in here a casual statement that at the age of fifteen he would be scared shitless uh, under U.S. custody, being tortured, uh, held without charge on an indefinite basis. I mean, uh, that that sets up a, a, a very one-sided situation that's hard for uh, even uh, an adult to cope with. Right. I mean, when he was he was um, as the only survivor of the firefight where he was captured. He was airlifted to the Bagram facility, and as soon as he regained consciousness, he actually was started being interrogated right while he was on a gurney, a hospital gurney. But the other evidence that he, or the other um, basis for the allegation that he threw the, um, the grenade is equally dubious. The person, the soldier who was there at the time and wrote up the report, originally wrote that the person who threw the grenade that killed, you know, um, a soldier named Spear, uh, died in the firefight. And then later, like I believe it was two months later, he went back and doctored the report and said that he was only wounded. And that way, that was the way to sort of point the finger at Cotter, because all the other people who were killed in the firefight were men. and They were, you know, sort of perhaps uh, al-Qaeda or Taliban-affiliated militants. And mm-hmm. because they were all killed and only Cotter was alive, to rewrite that um, report and then doctoring it so that he actually put the original date on the, on the revised report. And so that in and of itself raises some very serious questions. So, you know, there's no eyewitness to who threw the um, through the report, the, the closest thing that they had was, uh, you know, the then subsequently doctored account that it was one of the, you know, killed fighters that had thrown it and, and Cotter's own statement. Mm-hmm. The other um, significant charge against Cotter is, so that charge is, a t- is murder, murder in violation of the laws of war. The other significant charge is attempted murder, and that derives from the, the allegation that Cotter um, helped make and plant uh, improvised uh, explosive devices, you know, along Afghan roads. Mm-hmm. And the material evidence for that is a videotape that was subsequently found several weeks after the firefight where Hyder was captured, sort of buried in the rubble. And there is, from what I've heard of people who saw 
the tape, an image of, you know, 15-year-old Cotter sitting in a room with a bunch of men, and he's holding something that has wires on it. I mean, there, it's not clear that that's an IED or whatever. But again, it's that videotape, um, you know, that slim piece of visual evidence, and then his own statement that he was making IEDs and he was spying on U.S. military convoys and he participated in planting them. They're all statements that he gave while he was wounded and under interrogation and brutally, um, you know, coerced and and, uh, in some ways tortured. Now, Professor, I'm curious here because as you're describing these events and the charges against this young man, uh, a number of questions arise related to, well, gosh, isn't this just a combat situation? After all, uh, we did have uh, what passes these days for a declaration of war. Uh, in effect, after uh, we or as we invaded Afghanistan in late 2001, and by the summer of 2002, we were in uh, you know uh, readily uh, predictable combat situations there. So it it then begs the question of who is this guy and who is he aligned with or who do they allege? Was he part of the Taliban? Was he part of Al Qaeda? Uh, whom was he fighting for? Or was he just a resident in an area who was resisting invading forces? Uh, well, actually, both of those uh, things are true. I'll, I'll explain a little bit about who Qatar is because it's, it's crucial. But just your original, your first question there was, you know, why is this even an offense? I mean, a soldier dies in a firefight. That's not an extraordinary you know, it's a sad but not extraordinary uh, circumstance in the context of war. And many military law people, uh, you know, have opined about this, that, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, someone who was under aerial, involved in a fight where there was aerial bombardment and, you know, ground forces attacking would throw a grenade, I mean, even if it was Cotter, that that would itself not be um, a war crime. Uh, but, But the under the Bush administration, as they refashioned military law, they, it becomes an offense to them because of the fact that you know someone like Omar or anybody who's not a member of a regular recognized army has no right to fight. I mean, this goes to the larger um, issue that you know there was no recognition that even Afghani's under you know attack and invasion by U.S. forces had a had a legal right or recognized right by the U.S. to defend themselves. Hmm. But and and in fact. Um, the Cotter case specifically, because he is the only person who has been charged uh, in the military commissions for actual sort of war-like crimes, if not um, war crimes, the Obama administration, there's been fighting among various legal officials, you know, between the State Department and the Pentagon, because, in fact, they really literally had to uh, maneuver and, and um, break with international consensus about the laws of war in order to make Cotter prosecutable for this particular offense. I mean, it's something that goes, Cotter is, in a sense, um, the point person for whom much of military uh, law was reinterpreted against, you know, in some ways, the advice of Harold Coe, who's the, de- who's the legal advisor for the State Department. He had advised that, in fact, this is not a criminal offense, but mm-hmm. the Pentagon won. But the larger question, like, how did Omar Cotter, 15-year-old Omar Cotter, even get into that firefight, and that is one of the sort of the big story about Qadr and his family. His father, Ahmed, um, is an Egyptian-born Canadian citizen, um, 
and Omar's mother is a Palestinian-born Canadian citizen. And during the Soviet period in Afghanistan, uh, you know, Ahmed Qadr was a very devout person, and like you know, thousands of other devout Muslims sort of went in support of those who were fighting, um, you know, the Mujahideen against the, the Soviets. Of course, the United States was allied <laughs> with that, those forces at the time. And yeah. he, Ahmed Qadr, had you know, started getting involved in relief work, etc. But in the mid-1990s, he as once uh, Osama bin Laden relocated from Sudan to Afghanistan because of this sort of shared, you know, agreement about, you know, the desirability of a Sharia-run state and, you know, the agenda of al-Qaeda, Ahmed Qadr um, supposedly became uh, um, a financier of al-Qaeda, and certainly he became, you know, sort of a close intimate Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And so the Qadr family, I mean, all the children, would be moved periodically. Sometimes they'd spend in Canada, sometimes they'd be in Afghanistan where the father would be doing relief work, um, et cetera. They'd sometimes go to Pakistan. They would, the, the family moved back and forth and um, in the late 1990s became increasingly close with Osama bin Laden. At one point, the whole family moved into Osama bin Laden's compound mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. After the U.S.-led um, invasion began in, in October of 2001, the Qatar family then moved to Pakistan, like many people, sort of fleeing the war. And in June of 2002, Ahmed sent his 15-year-old son, Omar, back into Afghanistan with um, one of the, with an al-Qaeda person. And uh, Omar was instructed to just go and you know, serve as a translator since he's multilingual. And during the month of June, he supposedly had a little bit of um, weapons training in an al-Qaeda camp, and he was in the house, um, you know, with a group of uh, al-Qaeda-related, affiliated men the day that the firefight broke out. So in some ways, you know, what the defense is arguing is that um, even if, you know, Omar had committed the acts he committed, his youthfulness should, you know, bar him from being held criminally culpable, but, and the fact that he had no control over the kind of relationships and, and things he was, you know, com- commanded to do by his father. And so those factors should all be relevant. And one has to then wonder, what is it that really drives the U.S. government, the prosecutors and the government itself, to pursue a case, you know, of this sort with you know, the weak evidence, as mm-hmm. I had mentioned, and the youthfulness. But, you know, many of the, I mean, in some ways, a lot of Americans simply don't understand, like, you know, people will often come up with the point, like, well, the U.S. legal system, you know, prosecutes people at the age of 15 for murder. But <laughs> the difference being, of course, that the crime of murder in a domestic context and being charged with a war crime for murder are two entirely different um, balls of wax, and they're not even, you know, comparable. And I think that many people, you know, who are, in favor of this prosecution, just say, well, 15 isn't too young to be a really bad guy. And that's essentially the prosecution's case. And Lisa, absent the age factor and the fact that he's a minor and was essentially under the control of his father, uh, have you seen any other prosecution of this nature uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan where we're attempting to create a war crime out of a, a, an action in a war zone? where it, it strikes me that uh, th- this creates a, a whole perception uh, of a crusade and that we are holy warriors who are above uh, the standards that we apply to others. Yeah, um, it's, 
in some ways, the problem, and there's several, you know, I mean, I, I agree that, you know, we are really, the U.S. government has manipulated international law. I mean, one of the things about international law is that it's international. It can't be, you know, sort of re, I mean, it can't be legitimately rewritten to serve, you know, a particular agenda of a particular government at a particular time. But in fact... Oh, Jay Bybee wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I'm sure many, many uh, sort of legal conservative or right-wingers, I don't even want to use the word conservative, because many legal conservatives regard the conservation of military law, law to be a just thing, and this is not it. But, you know, because of the fact that, you know, first of all, the U.S. government held people incommunicado, uh, used tactics that included torture and cruel treatment, and then decided to prosecute people in the military commissions that bear virtually no resemblance to, you know, the due process protections, even in uh, military court-martials. For all of these factors, then, you know, the law, the law had to be rewritten, both to accommodate you know, the, the fact of torture and, and the use of hearsay and the agenda to at least prove to the American people that we could get, uh, you know, somebody convicted somewhere. Um, those are, I think, all, uh, you know, all critical factors. To this. Mm-hmm. Now, to the present tense, Omer Cotter is facing these uh, kangaroo courts that were at, at one point invalidated by the Supreme Court and then uh, reinstated by the Military Commissions Act of 2006. Uh, President Obama initially put on hold the use of military commissions, and then in a ghastly speech at the National Archives in front of the Constitution, uh, he announced that uh, some people would uh, face military commissions and others would be held indefinitely without trial, both of which I consider to be uh, uh, legal and moral atrocities. So uh, we, we have these commissions that are limping forward, and there are layers of issues here. Let's first talk about Cotter and his posture toward the military commissions and his on-again, off-again efforts to fire his lawyer. Um, well, you know, I think what Cotter, Cotter gave a very powerful statement uh, during the one-day hearing on, on July 12th, in which he said that you know, none of his lawyers, and, and in fact Cotter is somewhat infamous among you know Gitmo prisoners as having fired many many lawyers. I mean, Cotter has uh, had twelve American lawyers to date. I mean, he continues to have two Canadian lawyers. But what he said was none of his lawyers have ever, you know, persuaded him that there's any any justice can be had in the military commissions. You know, so for that reason alone, he would boycott this sham process. But he also then revealed what had not been, you know, there had been sort of murmurs that, you know, in June, uh, prosecutors had been striving, you know, to you know, save the Obama administration from the embarrassment of engaging in the first war crime prosecution of, ad- of an adolescent since the Nuremberg Tribunals by getting a plea bargain. And what Cotter said in his statement in court was that they had come to him with an offer of five years in Guantanamo and another... and. It would be a 30-year sentence, five of which he would serve in Guantanamo, then he would be repatriated to Canada, where he would serve out the rest of his, his sentence. But, you know, of course, for a plea bargain, one has to plead guilty. Mm-hmm. So Cotter also said that he's not guilty, you know, in his statement, he suggested he's not guilty of the, you know, the crime of 
throwing the grenade um, and that, you know, whatever else he's accused of, uh, he was tortured as a child and he's not, he shouldn't be held responsible for his actions and he reje- rejected uh, the plea bargain deal. And it was, you know, I don't know if there's a direct connection, but it was on July 7th that he had fired his lawyers. And so many people are speculating that it was, um, you know, his lawyers, but perhaps some of his lawyers, I, I don't, I, this is pure speculation, was that perhaps he was frustrated that his lawyers were thinking this might be the best deal, his civilian lawyers, that is, were thinking this might be the best deal he'd be able to make and he should take it because at least he'd be out in five years as opposed to the life sentence, you know, that he's facing if he goes to trial. Well, but it's not, it, let me just clarify, it's five years here and then another 25 in Canada in exactly. prison, right? But then I think, you know, again, this has been the subject of a great deal of speculation since the government itself has not, and it's typical, like, you know, people won't, you know, prosecutors won't actually reveal um, mm-hmm. the details of a plea bargain, especially when it failed, the negotiations failed. But, you know, some right. people were thinking that perhaps the lawyers uh, would convince him that, you know, even if he served five years in Guantanamo, once he got to Canada, Harper, you know, the conservative Prime Minister Harper will be gone, a new government could just then, you know, pardon him or release him. So, in other words, he'd at least be out of Guantanamo in five years, in which case, you know, he should look at that optimistically. But he really, um, you know, took a stand and said that he's not, he said if he's going to spend 30 years, he's not going to help the government send him away. And so at that point, he also insisted repeatedly that he was just simply going to boycott what he described as the sham process. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, what happened then at the hearing was that um, his military lawyer, uh, John Jackson, was um, who'd also been fired. I mean, Jackson, along with the two civilian lawyers, had been fired on July 7th. So Jackson had not spoken to Cotter after he was fired, but they were, you know, at the table together along with one of Cotter's two Canadian lawyers, Dennis Edley. And um, Edley was sitting next to Cotter and sort of giving him advice, but no Canadian is allowed to serve as, as a defense in the military commission. So Jackson, um, you know, the judge ultimately, you know, after some very um, sort of uh, odd questioning, I mean, first the judge didn't understand what boycotting meant. He assumed that when um, Cotter had fired his lawyers, that meant that he wanted to represent himself. And one of the craziest, you know, moments in that particular hearing was as if the judge, you know, his name is Judge Parrish, uh, um, Patrick Parish, I believe, did as if he didn't know who Cotter is. Was asking, you know, have you ever represented yourself or another person in the military commission? <laughs> yeah, like, when I was twelve. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like, are you unfamiliar with the history of the military commissions? And so, finally, when you know Cotter kept saying, "I'm boycotting, I'm boycotting," and then it's a, you know finally dawned on the judge that boycotting meant did not mean that he was, you know, firing his lawyers in order to represent himself. At that point, then the judge said he would refuse to release Jackson. And so then, you know, ultimately that was how the hearing ended. Jackson found out that he can um, represent Cotter without engaging in an ethical violation. And so presumably what will happen next, I mean, it'll be a continuation of what was going on in April and May, which were called pre-trial a pretrial hearing on motions to suppress Cotter's own statements and other forms of, of evidence. And what I assume is going to happen in August when the next round of hearings begins is perhaps what would have happened in July will happen in August, which is that psychologists and psychiatrists for both the defense 
and the prosecution will testify about Cotter's mental state, and then there will be closing arguments on the motion to suppress. And then once the judge has ruled on that, then the trial would proceed presumptively sometime in the fall, if if nothing else goes, you know, um, off you know, the scheduled track. But the, the prosecutors were quite agitated that, you know, and as one of the prosecutors, um, Jeff Groharing, even said that he testily, you know, told the judge that, you know, once again, Cotter was manipulating the process and showing his disdain for the military commissions. You know, it's like, Aww. think, you know. <laughs> but, well, uh, and, and let me inter- interject here, because uh, the coverage of this case I'm finding from Andy Worthington in Britain. His major source is the Globe and Mail newspaper from Toronto. Uh, You were there. I haven't seen a word about this in the New York Times. I haven't seen any coverage in the corporate media in this country. We're all, you know, watching the oil well not leak right now, which is a relief. But uh, I'm sorry, this this is a, a critical case and uh, raises a bunch of interesting and very significant issues. And our American media is largely taking a pass on this. Yeah, the one extraordinary exception, in fact, I think this is probably also a major source for Andy Worthington, is Carol Rosenberg of the Miami Herald. I mean, mm-hmm. she has been to virtually every single military commission hearing since the beginning. And she was at the hearings in April and May, and then she and three Canadian journalists, including Michelle Shepard, who wrote the very illuminating and and wonderfully written book called Guantanamo's Child. Michelle Shepard is from the Toronto Sun. The four of them, three Canadians and Carol Rosenberg, had actually published in their reporting from the April and May hearings the, the known name of one of the interrogators, but the Pentagon still regarded that name as classified, even though you know, his, he's given media interviews. I mean, it's not a secret. But so the, those four journalists were banned. And then Carol Rosenberg got a First Amendment lawyer. And so under pressure, the Pentagon unbanned her. So she was actually at the Cotter hearings, um, at the same Cotter hearing that I was at. And, and she's been unbanned. It remains um, to be seen whether the other Canadians will be unbanned for publishing the not-secret yet nevertheless classified name of an interrogator. Um, but I think that Cal Rosenberg and the Miami Herald are, are unique among the dailies in the United States for mm-hmm. giving Guantanamo that kind of extensive coverage. And, and this next issue I want to w- get you to weigh in on is another critical factor that would make for a very interesting uh, newspaper article. And again, I have to ding the editors who probably have reporters who are uh, filing stories, but they are not getting published. And somebody's decided that uh, nobody cares about Gitmo anymore, and I, I'm, I'm angry and frustrated by that. Now, the next issue has to do with these military lawyers who are ordered to represent as defense attorneys individuals like Omer Cotter. And you've talked a little bit about Lieutenant Colonel Jackson. Here's a quote that Andy Worthington uh, attributes to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jackson. Therefore, I intend to provide Cotter with a zealous defense at his trial in August. Omar Cotter continues to be the victim in this case. I never envisioned a scenario in my career as an Army lawyer that would require me to defend a child soldier against war crimes charges 
levied by the United States. I always believed we were better than that. Now, this is a remarkable statement, a lot of courage coming from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jackson here, to confront the, the gross atrocity of not only the system that he is uh, bound up in, but the dirty work that he's being asked to do over the objection of his presumed client. Right. Um, In fact, you know, what I've been doing this year when I'm on sabbatical is I'm writing a book about the lawyers. I mean, not only the military lawyers, also civilian lawyers. So I've interviewed Jackson several times and and others. And Jackson's position in that, the statements he's made, are very similar to other military defense lawyers. One just thinks back to Lieutenant Commander Charlie Swift and the statements he gave about um, his client, Salim Hamdan, who was bin Laden's driver and who, you know, the only reason Hamdan, the Hamdan case was, you know, one of the first to be charged in the military commissions was that under torture he'd agreed to a plea bargain. You know, and so Swift was originally assigned to defend, to basically just, you know, conclude a plea bargain deal, and instead, you know, he joined forces with um, some civilian lawyers and ended up pursuing a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that actually canceled the military commissions until Congress remade them. So Swift has said this. I mean, all, many of the military lawyers um, are just chagrined at the, you know, the, the nature of the evidence the government has, the simple fact that military law has been you know, manipulated to be to make, you know, as in the case of David Hicks, the Australian, his nickname, the Australian Taliban, to mm-hmm. make, you know, just the most, um, you know, non-militant types of activities into, you know, these punishable offenses. I think so. One way that military lawyers, the military defense lawyers, describe themselves. I mean, this is you know, sort of just a, um, off-the-cuff comments. Would say that the military defense, the office of the military defense. Uh, for the commissions is the liberal wing of the whole military. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. people. And John Jackson is a very interesting person. I mean, when I interviewed him, I always ask, you know, I'm a sociologist, so I always ask people to tell me a bit about their background. And the way Jackson described himself was that he grew up very, very staunchly Republican. And he looks at me, he's like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I respond to him, I said, were you a Reagan lover? He's like, I was a Reagan lover. I loved Reagan. He's like, I was married to a Reagan lover. You know, and then once he got this assignment, you know, to move into the military commissions and just started seeing what was going on, he just couldn't believe what was going on. And as he would now describe himself, is that he's on the human rights wing of the Democratic Party now. And so, and I think that that is Well, it's kind of it's kind of lonely out here, so uh, <laughs> Lieutenant uh, Colonel, I welcome you. <laughs> right. But I mean, in some ways, many of the lawyers who, you know, many people in the military are, you know, probably politically conservative, if not necessarily Republican. But uh, I think that the radicalness of um, the Bush administration and the, um, you know, intransigence of the Obama administration to rectify things has really shaken people into uh, a different kind of uh, ideological posture in terms of their own government. Here's one more quote from uh, a uh, an attorney and army major who was required to uh, defend uh, one of the individuals at Guantanamo. And again, I attribute this to Andy Worthington. And he uh, cites uh, GQ magazine in 2007, an interview with Army Major Tom Fleener. And Fleener was uh, required to uh, represent an individual. He says, 
The concept of compelled representation has always bothered the crap out of me. You just don't force lawyers on people. You don't represent someone against his will. It's never, ever, ever done. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's absolutely... Well, Eve, that's the whole point, that the issue of... Um, I mean, that's true, but if you think about how um, it works in the military commissions, I mean, unlike a normal uh, criminal court system where a person's right to represent themselves, the right to go pro se, is one manifestation of the larger issue of due process in the military commissions, because there is no you know, due process, um, nor really effectively any presumption of innocence, uh, to, to the point that you know, people, you know, the, the commission rules were written that there has to be a lawyer detailed to uh, represent somebody is the kind of ex post facto effort by the government to minimize how unjust the system looks. Because, I mean, imagine how unjust it would look to say that someone's convicted without having mounted any kind of a defense. Now, the case, I believe that Fleener um, was one of his clients in the military commissions was Ali Hamza Bahlul. And Bahlul was, it was the third person convicted in the military courts. He got a life sentence, um, and his crime was he was a propagandist for al-Qaeda. But, it, but in complete, you know, he was an adult and a completely you know, sort of unrepentant uh, propagandist. I mean, ironically, the main um, material evidence against him was that he made a videotape, which is actually publicly available. You know, you can find it in the United States, and yet he got a life sentence for having... Uh, made that, but he adamantly insisted that the, the meaning of boycott for him was that his lawyers would sit mute and they really couldn't uh, do anything. But they were forced, in a sense, to be there, um, you know, because the commission simply wouldn't um, permit, you know, somebody not to have a lawyer. Because in the end, you know, the, the commission's process against any one individual is merely a means to a larger government end, which is the attempt to show that there's some legitimacy in this whole fabricated system. Yeah, and uh, Worthington uh, goes into some detail, and people can read it at andyworthington.co.uk, but the Military Commissions Act does permit the accused to represent himself, and then there are a series of caveats that essentially say if the presiding officer doesn't uh, agree, then uh, that, (laughs) that point is null and void. So it's uh, you can represent yourself unless we don't think you ought to represent yourself. Right. Which... I mean, well, exactly. And the fact that Cotter didn't want legal representation, but the fact that he's you know been in Guantanamo for a third of his life and you know in U.S. custody since he was fifteen, raises just at that one level the question of like what would self-representation mean for somebody in that position, which is different than, you know, the highly charismatic, you know, adult Ali Bahlul, or, you know, if and when Eric Holder ever decides where, where the 9-11-5 are going to be prosecuted, um, my understanding is that at least Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and several of the other ones want to represent themselves, don't want uh, attorneys, although mm-hmm. technically there are still attorneys assigned to their cases, you know, even as they st- have stalled in complete, you know, inertia. One more question about the Cotter case, and that is, could you describe him? Uh, is he verbally adept? Is he competent, uh, in your view, uh, to manage the legal issues presented to him? Well, he, in that one day in court when I saw him, uh, both on the basis of a statement he read and his demeanor, and considering what this 
you know, young man has been through, he would be articulate and self-possessed by any standard for a 23-year-old. I mean, honestly, I've had college students who are less articulate than Omar Carter. He's extremely, uh, you know, I mean, he's obviously a wounded person, you know, psychologically, psychically wounded and supposedly um, suffers from fairly severe, severe PTSD, but he's charismatic, he has a sense of himself. Um, he was able, I mean, in some ways I thought that he ran circles around the judge and the prosecutors um, in, in his answers. For example, when the judge asked him, you know, what's your education? You know, his witty response was five years in the military commission. You know, and then he was going back and forth when the judge thought that he wanted to represent himself before he, the judge processed what boycott meant. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, asking whether or not Cotter even understands the rules of the military commission. And Cotter said, I understand the rules as well as my lawyers do. There are no rules, you know. And, of course, he was absolutely correct because mm-hmm. in April, during the pretrial hearings, or, you know, the earlier round of pretrial hearings, the, the, the military commission rule book materialized, you know, a day after the proceedings had already gotten started. So in that sense, he's extremely... Um, you know, shrewd and and quite charismatic. He seems um, to have, you know, just in terms of watching him in court, a, a rather um, uh, soft-spoken and, and somewhat delicate disposition. I mean, he's, you know, not a small person, but he's, uh, you know, sort of uh, wraith-like in his, in his uh, demeanor and never lost his temper, never did anything, um, no matter how things were going, and just seemed very um, calm, which I have to say is is an incredible, uh, you know, psychological achievement in light of what he's been through. Yeah, and I want to move on to another case that you've written about. Is there anything you want to add in closing about the Cotter case and what comes next? Well, the only thing I would mention is that you know, with the number, many of the of the fourteen journalists, there were only fourteen who went down for the Cotter hearing. At least half of them were Canadians, and there's now, you know, the beginnings of some kind of more public pressure and some pressure from the courts to, to press the Canadian government, to do to press the Obama administration. So I think that there's um, certainly public relations work and media work to be done within the Canadian context um, to just sort of perhaps take the whole, you know, get Cotter out of Guantanamo and back to Canada, although the likelihood of that happening remains slim. We're talking with Professor Lisa Hajar from the uh, University of California at Santa Barbara, and you can read her work at merip.org, and that is the website of the Middle East Report online. And, uh, Professor, you wrote a powerful piece dated June 24th of this year that added to my knowledge of the case of Maher Arar, and he was the Canadian citizen of Syrian ancestry, who was uh, intercepted at JFK, and then he was subjected to the uh, the torture taxi, the uh, so-called rendition scheme, where we just spirited him out of the country, and we took him to the last place he wanted to go, Syria, where he was tortured. But you've added a great deal of detail that helped me understand, uh, number one, why he was a suspect to begin with, and then the uh, uh, extreme methods that were used to try to beat uh, what they thought was the truth out of uh, Maher Arar. And uh, if you could tell our listeners just uh, in, in kind of a summary form about the two other individuals, uh, both Canadian citizens, 
Um, one, a, 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 another engineer of Syrian extraction named Al Malki, and then a, 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 a Canadian who was born in Kuwait named El Ma'ati, M-A-A-T-I, because these details uh, give us a, a lot more information about what occurred to, or what was done to Arar, and uh, what they were trying to do by torturing these other two suspects to come up with a coherent story for Arar. Well, in fact, um, the be- perhaps the beginning of Arar's story traces back to years before anything directly affecting or relating to him, and it goes in some ways back to uh, uh, Omar Khadr's father, Ahmed. So in the ni- mid-1990s, um, as the Canadian Royal um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, uh, you know, became aware of the fact that one of their citizens, you know, Ahmed Khadr, was, uh, you know, work, you know, traveling repeatedly to Afghanistan and in uh, cahoots in some fashion with uh, Osama bin Laden. There developed a kind of a surveillance uh, project that was targeting mainly Muslims in Toronto and Ottawa, the two cities where, you know, Many Muslim immigrants have um, settled in Canada. And, you know, all kinds of just sort of looking into, like, who are these people? And so Al-Malki, um, who was the other Syrian-born person, Al-Malki had actually worked in the early 1990s for a Canadian uh, relief organization. And then um, Ahmed Khadr was his boss, and he quit because he just didn't like <laughs> Ahmed Khadr. But it was that single little... Um, connection that got Al-Malki under surveillance uh, by the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police. He just became one of many people that they were surveilling, and surveillance picked up dramatically, you know, of course, after 9-11, where Mm -hmm. Canada um, was looking for possible sleeper cells. Um, And Al-Malki was, um, his brother was actually in Afghanistan, so to some extent a little bit of guilt by association. And Al-Mati was also under uh, Canadian surveillance. Now, Maharar became a, quote, person of interest to the Canadians when one day in October of 2001, it was after 9-11, he met um, Al-Mati, his, you know, fellows, you know, born, two of them born in Syria, both engineers. And uh, Arar had just moved back to Ottawa. His wife was pregnant for the first time. So he and Al-Malki met to talk about, you know, have lunch and discuss, you know, obstetricians, since Al-Malki had four children. And, you know, Al-Malki was, Al-Malki was under surveillance at the time. Mm-hmm. And the people surveilling um, him thought it was suspicious that he and Arar spent some time that day talking outside, even though it was raining. And so it was that simple fact that they were talking outside as if it was presumed that they had something that they didn't want listening devices to pick up mm-hmm. that put um, Arar onto the, onto the radar screen. And that was literally just that little piece of information that, um, you know, the, the, the Mounties then, you know, wanted to figure out what was, you know, had brought Arar in once or twice for questioning didn't really see anything, but when Arar traveled to Tunisia um, to, to be with his wife's family, his wife is of Tunisian origin, the Canadians, all of a sudden, they didn't know where he had gone or why he had gone. And so there was sort of a lookout that he was wanted for questioning back in Canada. And when Arar transited through uh, the JFK airport, you know, he was picked up and detained. And at that point, the United States um, just you know, as you said, decided to spirit him off to Syria. Meanwhile, 
al-Mati and al-Malki were both already in Syria for two different reasons. Al-Mati had gone there just to marry his Syrian fiance, and, you know, this sort of reveals some of the, although Syria is not typically regarded as a, you know, a collaborating government with either the United States or Canada at that time in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was certainly some, uh, you know, collusions going on, shared secret ties among various intelligence agencies. And so both al-Mati and al-Malki were interrogated about possible ties to al-Qaeda and Canadians they knew. And so there was, you know, subsequently it's revealed that the Canadian government must have been feeding uh, the Syrians some questions to ask. And when Arar was then sent off by the United States to Syria, he and al-Malki, who did know each other, were like, you know, back simultaneously tortured, each asked questions about the other, and if either one said something different, then, the, you know, it sort of increased the torture. But Well, and, and as Arar cracked under the torture, tried to give them the answers that he thought they wanted, then these were, were squared with uh, al-Malki, who, for example, said, well, no, I don't think Arar's ever been to Afghanistan, which is one of the things that he coughed up uh, under torture. And so this created uh, the recycling of lies uh, as they attempted to please their captors and torturers. Absolutely. And, and then this, this is called the production of intelligence by people like Rumsfeld and Cheney. Right. You just beat the crap out of them until they say what you want, even if it doesn't match uh, uh, the truth, I mean, you, you write in here at one point that uh, the U.S. officials and in turn the Syrian interrogators would have known that Arar had never been to Afghanistan. So for him to say that um, is obviously a desperate ploy to avoid further torture. Absolutely. And in fact, just to bring it back to our original uh, topic, you know, while Arar was being detained at JFK, Cotter, Omar Cotter, who was still at Bagram at the time, was shown a picture of Arar. He originally said, I don't, I've never seen him, I don't recognize him. Under pressure, Omar Cotter, a 15-year-old badly wounded boy, then said, okay, well, maybe I saw him at, a, at an al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan. Mm. So that in and of itself then also feeds into these, like, we need to get to see, have the Syrians you know, beat and, and, you know, horrify the truth out of them. But the Syrians even ultimately realized that the allegations against both al-Malki and Arar were absolutely baseless, and the Syrians then subsequently sent Arar back to Canada. And to Canada's credit, and in great, in great contrast to the United States, the Canadians, um, in, you know, instituted an official commission of inquiry, which completely cleared Arar of any suspicion that he had ever been associated with terrorism. And the government, which had in some ways um, colluded, at least in the suspicions that led to his rendition, if not directly his rendition, paid him, you know, compensation of $10 million. Well, and I agree. And the Canadians uh, have set a standard that uh, our forward-looking president should uh, take a look at, because it's embarrassing that uh, our Supreme Court has once again uh, denied any kind of, of uh, legal review or relief for Maher Arar, uh, despite the clear record here. And it's, it's just, uh, well, it's insulting to our intelligence. Professor, you introduced me to a new term here called non-refoulement or non-refoulement. Um, explain what that means under international law, please. 
Well, the, the laws prohibiting torture, and that's a universal prohibition that applies in war and peace, etc. One element of that is not only, um, you know, the prohibition to torture people, but also the prohibition to send people anywhere where it's likely that they're going to be tortured. So sending someone to torture is also a punishable offense, you know, even if one doesn't directly engage in the torture. But it is, you know, like many laws, it has that subjective terminology of, you know, is a likely, you know, if torture is likely to occur, you know, and so um, in that case, you know, one could, you know, the argument could, and what the U.S. government has said in regard to the Iraq case ever since was that, oh, well, the Syrians had provided uh, assurances that Iraq wouldn't be tortured, which is laughable in the sense that the United States has repeatedly, you know, over the years documented um, Syrian torture in its you know, annual State Department reports. So it's just a very uh, convenient and completely implausible uh, argument. But yes, so in fact, not only is torture criminalized, but abetment of torture and sending someone to torture are mm-hmm. also criminal offenses. And you cite Scott Horton from Harper's Magazine and Columbia University Law School, who's been on our program before. The fact that the Syrian interrogators asked Arar the same questions that the Americans had asked and were in regular contact with Washington about his interrogation, confirms the prima facie uh, conspiracy to torture. Now, I would add to that that we know that in the case of uh, Abu Zubaydah, Zubaydah and other so-called high-profile or high-value um, uh, value detainees, that these were micromanaged from the National Security Council, that they were sitting at the White House sending text messages or, you know, secure cables back and forth, Uh, even, you know, to the details of how many times to waterboard somebody. And so we have to expect that some of the same micromanagement detailed control from Washington was used to manage the torture of these individuals in Syria. Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, I think that um, certainly the, 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 duplication of questioning and the fact that uh, one of the things I document in the Arar article was, you know, uh, when um, uh, the questioning of al-Malki sort of takes a different turn and becomes much more focused uh, on Arar and others. I mean, this is directly, you know, sort of coming out of intelligence to the Syrians, even before Arar got to Syria, that was being pushed around by the United States and, and Canada. So there was certainly... I mean, I think someday one of the great untold stories is the secret, the details of the collusions among, you know, security forces of various countries, even countries that are not necessarily aligned with each other. I mean, some of the the back channel aspects, like what goes on from the White House into the torture chambers in other countries, like what exactly is going on and how that works. It's the it's it's one of many untold stories, I think. Yeah. And our failure to investigate these issues means that the evidence will be destroyed should original jurisdiction be declared by some foreign entity that might try to investigate these things in the future. And, Professor, I want to take a moment here to read one paragraph from your article, because uh, I hope it'll give people uh, a sense of just how drastic this treatment was. And you're describing the uh, treatment of al-Malki in Syria. He was detained at the Damascus airport, transferred to Palestine branch. He was questioned about other Canadians, including al-Mati. 
He was subjected to falakwa, beating on the bare soles of the feet with a heavy cable, then forced to get up and jog in place. Dousing with water intensified the pain of the beatings. He falsely confessed that he knew Osama bin Laden, concocting a story that they had met when he was working in Pakistan. He rebuffed his interrogator's allegation that he was bin Laden's right-hand man, but in a fit of tortured sarcasm, admitted to being his left-hand man. But the Syrians knew that bin Laden had been in Sudan during the period when al-Maki was working in Pakistan, so they beat him for lying. Interrogators later told him that on that first day, he had been lashed 1,000 times with the cable. He was also subjected to electric shock, the so-called German chair, a device resembling the medieval rack that hyperextends the spine, and fingernail pulling. He, too, was dispatched to the underground grave where he spent most of the next 482 days in Syrian custody. And that's just uh, some detail of the treatment of these individuals. So it wasn't just, uh, you know, loud, bad music or hot and cold temperatures or even some of the, uh, you know, barbaric tactics like walling, uh, where you slam somebody against the wall uh, that were actually approved for use by uh, Americans in interrogation procedures. So we talked a little bit about the Canadian government's uh, uh, correct response. They formed the Arar Commission. They investigated, and uh, they issued him $10.5 million and an apology. And I contrast that, Professor, with uh, one of the references you make in here, that on May 26th of 2003, FBI Director Robert Mueller and Attorney General John Ashcroft claimed they had hard evidence of an impending attack on the U.S. based on these false confessions. And it, it strikes me that, you know, we have no accountability for these leaders. Mueller continues as director of the FBI, and John Ashcroft uh, went on to become a lobbyist. And so we, we don't even make an attempt to hold accountable officials who have been proven to have lied to us about very critical issues. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, Americans have you know, a very uh, oversized, uh, you know, national uh, gullibility as far as whatever, you know, sort of America right or wrong and, and anything that is said. There just simply isn't enough critical inquiry. But one of the things that I think you know, um, really needs to happen in terms of a, a national conversation, something that, you know, I and other people who are working on these types of issues have been very intent on is, you know, really trying to demonstrate with, you know, empirical facts that torture did not work. It did not even work for the purpose for which it was used, which was actionable or accurate intelligence. I mean, we essentially got nothing and the few from the whole torture regiment. And yet, you know, many Americans are still engaged in the hypothetical ticking bomb argument that, well, if we are, you know, subjected to uh, the, the risk of a dangerous attack by terrorists, the torture is legitimate. I mean, torture simply doesn't work. It's an, that's an age-old truism that Amer the American record has demonstrated tenfold. And yet there's an unwillingness not only to... Um, hold people accountable. I think the reluctance to even consider accountability is premised on the, you know, misinformation that somehow we were kept 
safer as a result of, tor- of torture, when mm-hmm. in fact that's you know demonstrably not true, and we've gotten virtually nothing from it. And even the efforts to hold accountable those people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who actually did engage in you know very serious acts of violence um, that killed thousands of people is going to be compromised by the fact that we use torture. So it's been sort of a multi-layered disaster, and Americans really need to appreciate that and start looking at those officials who justified it, who made excuses about it, who've lied about its efficacy, and just hold them in disrepute, you know, the same way we would hold today the kind of people who were involved in the McCarthy witch hunts in disrepute. We should just, you know, beat, you know, <laughs> beat the rush and start holding them in disrepute now and not wait for another 20 years. And, Professor, your article gives uh, some great detail about the legal process and the efforts by Maharar to uh, win a uh, uh, really a legal uh, justice or a clearing of his name through the American courts. And I don't want to go into the lengthy process, but I do want to uh, ask you to give us the thumbnail on the Supreme Court decision on June 14th, where in a 22-word statement, they locked the door, uh, appears permanently, on any legal redress for Maharar in the U.S. courts. Well, you know, the few cases that the Supreme Court has found against the government, the Rasul case recognizing that Guantanamo detainees have habeas corpus rights, the Hamdan case recognizing that the military commissions were unconstitutional and that the Geneva Conventions at least you know, minimally apply, um, and the Boumediene uh, decision. Those three um, decisions if one understands why and how the Supreme Court reached them, were essentially the Supreme Court defending the jurisdiction of courts against an over-reaching you know, executive. What the Supreme Court and no other courts in the country, with very few exceptions, have found substantively in right of torture victims' rights. I mean, there's been you know, nothing to really vindicate victims of the torture policy, and the case of Maharar is simply endemic of, of the cases of many. So what the Supreme Court did was they simply, they didn't rule, they simply said they were not even going to um, hear the, the case that had been, Arar's case suing John Ashcroft and other U.S. officials who were responsible for his torture. They weren't even going to hear it. They were going to allow the decision of the Second Circuit to stand, and that decision of the Second Circuit is um, essentially says that U.S. officials simply cannot be sued for anything they do in their official capacity, which defies, you know, at least I mean, all of the uh, rules and you know the norms of law, and particularly the laws of war, which you know require states to prosecute their you know lawbreakers, including officials. So in some ways, the Supreme Court in this case and in other cases has completely evaded its most important responsibility, which is to enforce the law. And and the court has been complicit in the refusal to enforce the law against U.S. officials. Lisa Hajar, thank you for your very cogent commentary on these issues and on the Cotter case. I look forward to your book and uh, really appreciate that you're taking your time and energy to cover these very important issues. Thank you. And I will have a longer uh, analytical article on Cotter and the military commissions coming out through Merip in uh, hopefully the next couple of days. All right. 
Professor, thank you for joining us today on the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company, and I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone, at 1-888-ECO-WINE, or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com. A bientôt, j'espère. Merci. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. And do me a favor, tell a friend if you enjoy this podcast. We'd like to expand our distribution to as many people as possible all over the doggone world. So how about make a note right now? Send an email to 10 friends with the link to peterbcollins.com and let's see what happens. Well, over the weekend, the president gave his weekly, it used to just be a radio address, but uh, because the Obama team is so high-tech, they videotape it and uh, feed it as a video feed or podcast on the web, and it's available at thewhitehouse.gov if you want to go anytime and take a look. But I thought it'd be interesting, I have only read news accounts of the president's most recent uh, weekly address, and so I'm going to listen to this with you for the first time and pause it occasionally to interject my comments. And I'll try to uh, maintain appropriate respect for the President of the United States. We'll see how that goes. All right, the video is loading right now. And uh, any second, we'll hear President Barack Obama, July 17th, 2010. This week, many of our largest corporations reported robust earnings, a positive sign of growth. But too many of our small business owners and those who aspire to start their own small businesses continue to struggle, in part because they can't get the credit they need to start up, grow, and hire. And too many Americans whose livelihoods have fallen prey to the worst recession in our lifetimes, a recession that cost our economy 8 million jobs, still wonder how they'll make ends meet. That's why we need to take new, common-sense steps to help small businesses grow our economy and create jobs. And we need to take them now. All right. So far, so good. The president is uh, zeroing in on the problem uh, that small businesses face because the banks that he bailed out uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars, and the latest number I've seen is $24 trillion. The total amount of cash and assumption of liabilities by the U.S. government in bailing out the gamblers on Wall Street. And we threw money at them. We allowed them to keep their bonuses. We didn't prosecute anybody who turned the corner from gaming the system to outright fraud. And now the banksters have the money with the new financial reform legislation uh, passed uh, and signed into law. Many of them are looking at different ways to fleece their customers to maintain their profitability. But the one thing that doesn't appear to be happening is liquidity and availability of credit to most credit-worthy borrowers in the United States. It's still very tight. For months, that's what we've been trying to do. But too often, the Republican leadership in the United States Senate chooses to filibuster our recovery and obstruct our progress. Now, this is a very important breakthrough. Barack Obama has finally and publicly stated the obvious that Republicans are blocking his efforts in every way, shape, and form, and some that we never imagined. And here it is, the middle of July, a year and a half into his presidency, 
And because, only because of the upcoming midterm elections, the president is breaking his own precedent and starting to criticize Republicans. Maybe he has finally figured out, as most of us did in, say, March of 2009, maybe he's figured out that these Republicans are not going to come around to his bipartisan, postpartisan entreaties. Only three Republicans supported the watered-down financial reform. And I think he finally recognizes that the only prospect he sees in continuing to court Republicans is diminishing returns, and that's from an already diminished position. More from Mr. Obama. And that has very real consequences. Consider what this obstruction means for our small businesses. The growth engines that create two of every three new jobs in this country. A lot of small businesses still have trouble getting the loans and capital they need to keep their doors open and hire new workers. So we propose steps to get them that help. Eliminating capital gains taxes on investments. Establishing a fund for small lenders to help small businesses. Enhancing successful SBA programs that help them access the capital they need. Now, I'm sorry, but those are Republican talking points. We here in California hear Carly Fiorina, the failed CEO of Hewlett-Packard, who's challenging Barbara Boxer for her U.S. Senate seat, talk about the way to create jobs, which in her view is to offer a two-year freebie on payroll taxes for new hires. Now, I don't, uh, you know, just automatically oppose that idea. But the problem we have here is on the demand side. And it's because people are out of work. And until we stimulate demand so that consumers have more money to buy consumer goods, then what little manufacturing we continue to do in this country will remain at a very low level. And so these these ideas that the president is espousing here, I, I don't consider bad. But I also don't feel that they address the core problem that we have, that there isn't confidence in Wall Street, that they stole our money and are being allowed to keep it and keep their yachts and keep their bonuses, and most of them stay out of jail, when the average person is paying a huge price for those blunders and our failure to uh, counter them or uh, hold accountable those who committed them. But again and again... A partisan minority in the Senate said no and used procedural tactics to block a simple up or down vote. Think about what these stalling tactics mean for the millions of Americans who've lost their jobs since the recession began. Over the past several weeks, more than two million of them have seen their unemployment insurance expire. For many, it was the only way to make ends meet while searching for work. The only way to cover rent, utilities, even food. And Mr. President, maybe you're going to mention this, but shouldn't we underscore that unemployment benefits are at least nominally an insurance pool and that the people who draw unemployment paid into that pool during all the years that they were working? This is not a gift. It's not a gimme. It's not a welfare uh, kind of, of concept. Now, certainly people who go beyond 99 weeks probably are getting a gift here. It's not money that was in their unemployment insurance pool. 
But I think it's very important to conceptually separate unemployment benefits from giveaways like tax cuts to the rich or the way many wealthy people view welfare. Three times the Senate has tried to temporarily extend that emergency assistance. And three times a minority of senators, basically the same crowd who said no to small businesses, said no to folks looking for work and blocked a straight up or down vote. Some Republican leaders actually treat this unemployment insurance as if it's a form of welfare. They say it discourages folks from looking for work. (laughs) Well, I've met a lot of folks looking for work these past few years, and I can tell you, I haven't met any American who would rather have an unemployment check than a meaningful job that lets you provide for your family. Good line. And we all have friends, or neighbors, or family members who already know how hard it is to land a job when five workers are competing for every opening. Now, in the past, presidents and congresses of both parties have treated unemployment insurance for what it is, an emergency expenditure. That's because an economic disaster can devastate families and communities just as surely as a flood or tornado. But suddenly, Republican leaders want to change that. They say we shouldn't provide unemployment insurance because it costs money. So after years of championing policies that turned a record surplus into a massive deficit, including a tax cut for the wealthiest Americans, they finally decided to make their stand on the backs of the unemployed. Well, I just have to say, President Obama, it's about time. I'm delighted to hear you say this. But where have you been? And why does it take the looming electoral loss in the midterms of Congress and Senate seats and, uh, you know, Clearly, the next two years are going to be even more difficult. Why haven't you called out the Republicans before this? I don't understand. I've got no problem spending money on tax breaks for folks at the top who don't need them and didn't even ask for them. But they object to helping folks laid off in this recession who really do need help. And Mr. President, please don't overlook that you and the Republicans continue to shovel tens of billions of dollars every month into the endless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that is a huge cause of our economic distress. Can we just at least mention that? And every day this goes on, another 50,000 Americans lose that badly needed lifeline. Well, I think these senators are wrong. We can't afford to go back to the same misguided policies that led us into this mess. We need to move forward with the policies that are leading us out of this mess. The fact is, most economists agree that extending unemployment insurance is one of the single most cost-effective ways to help jumpstart the economy. It puts money into the pockets of folks who not only need it most, but who are also most likely to spend it quickly. That boosts local economies, and that means jobs. Increasing loans to small businesses, renewing unemployment insurance, These steps aren't just the right thing to do for those hardest hit by the recession. They're the right thing to do for all of us. And I'm calling on Congress once more to take these steps on behalf of America's workers and their families and small business owners, the people we were sent here to serve. Because when storms strike Main Street, we don't play politics with emergency aid. We don't desert our fellow Americans when they fall on hard times. We come together. We do what we can to help. We rebuild stronger, and we move forward. That's what we're doing today. 
And I'm absolutely convinced that's how we're going to come through this storm to better days ahead. Well, I have to tell you that I must cheer the president's remarks. And you heard, I don't completely agree with him. And if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know I have many deep disagreements with this president. You just heard us talking about his torture policy. But this is an important first step. We need to encourage Barack Obama to continue on this path, to call out the Republicans for what they are, and don't just limit it to the safe issues like extending unemployment, uh, unemployment benefits and getting lending flowing to small business. They are blocking every important effort. Let's not forget the Employee Free Choice Act. The labor unions and the members of labor who supported Barack Obama and went 10 extra miles to get him elected in 2008 are still waiting. Still waiting, Mr. President. But this is an important first step, and I thank you for it. And finally, on today's podcast, our official film reviewer, Gary Chu, has been to see Inception, the new Leonardo DiCaprio film. And I haven't seen the film yet, but I'm really intrigued by Gary's review. And all you really need to know is the DiCaprio film is about dreams and layers of reality related to dreams. And I think after you hear this review, you'll agree, Gary Chu must have a very exciting and colorful dream life. The night before I was scheduled to see a screening of Inception, I had the strangest dream. I dreamt I was in more than one place at a time and time itself moved at dissimilar speeds according to whichever of the three levels of my multitasking dreams were going forward. Some of the players in my dreams included Ellen Page in the role of Juno, as she appeared in the movie of the same name. Another character in my lair of reveries was Michael Serra, who was also in Juno. Mr. Serra was playing against type since he was masquerading as Leonardo DiCaprio with the same mannerisms Mr. DiCaprio uses when he does his overwrought characters. Marion Cotard, the lovely and talented French actor for some bizarre reason, was Leonardo's wife in this crazy dream of mine. And probably the nuttiest thing of all was that Alfie, that Lothario from that same title movie, had a couple of passing moments in my dream. Alfie appeared quite elderly, however, and seemed to be less of a jerk than he was back in 1966, but still a real talent. A young man looking suspiciously like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, sporting a haircut much different than the one he had in 500 Days of Summer, manifested as sort of an adroit sidekick of the Sarah DiCaprio character. At the inception of my dream, there was no exposition, just an abrupt lurching into all kinds of chaos and action around me. I couldn't immediately grasp what the hell was going on, but heck, I've had stranger dreams than that. Furthermore, all the people in my dream were very sketchy. I couldn't get much of a handle on anything about their characters. But they were all good in my sleepy time ruminations. They exuded great confidence, athletic prowess, and especially adept at handling automatic weapons and explosive devices. I thought, 
oh, my dream is something akin to a James Bond caper. But as I dreamt on, I realized no one in these near nightmares of mine worked for a big government, and there was no hanky-panky with hot foreign ladies. Actually, everyone was employed by large corporations with an ultimate intent of trying to dissolve a successful businessman's advantage by putting a new idea, an inception, you see, in the mind of his son. The elderly father was about to die of natural causes and kept secreted in a safe his last will and testament that would greatly affect what the son would do with his father's large company. The will, although it's hazy now, seemed to be what the corporate dream guys wanted to get their hands on. Well, not quite all of them were working to accomplish that. Some were trying to keep Michael Sarah as Leonardo DiCaprio from putting that specific idea in the head of the son. Since it's hard to tell how long dreams actually last, I can't say how much time it took for me to dream all this. It could have been only a matter of moments, even though it seemed like it was really, really, really a long time. Something sort of funny came up as I dreamt on. The corporate dream guys referred to getting into the lowest stage or third tier of dreaming, since it happened so suddenly, as sort of a limbo rush. And whenever they'd say limbo rush, looking into a mirror, it came out as rush limbo. That may be the silliest part of the dream. I can't figure out why that term popped into my silly brain. And now that I'm awake here on the morning of the day I'll later see Inception, I'm all stoked as I hear tonight's movie was directed and written by Christopher Nolan, who also did The Black Knight. Earlier, Mr. Nolan did two really good films that have to do with time and sleeplessness. I hear this new one of Nolan's has really spectacular special effects, but the music by Hans Zimmer, doing some John Barry James Bond chords over and over, is too loud. Hopefully Inception will be as good as Memento and Insomnia. Golly, I hope what I dreamed last night isn't some kind of premonition, since someone in my dream woke me, shouting, Cool! More pseudo-smart cinema! It makes me ponder... What are the chances this outre dreamscape reoccurs, you know, like a sequel? I'm Gary Chu on location for the Outre Peter B. Collins podcast, wherever it comes from. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. I wish you pleasant dreams and happy trails. Email Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you until again happy trails to you keep smiling until then